Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Church, and thank you for joining us in worship. And as always, any questions you may have, comments, concerns, uh, needs even, a few of us will be in the back shaking hands after service is over. And so please come and speak with me or with any one of the other elders. You know, Sunday mornings are always a great time to connect, especially if you are in the midst of a busy week and you just wanted a quick clarification or input on something. Uh, you can always do that in just a matter of minutes. And so anything that has been on your mind, uh, please do not hesitate. Now, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you, and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 22 and verse 14 as we continue our study through Luke. Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 23 is our passage this morning. And that passage can be found on page 882 if you are using a church Bible, page 882. Luke chapter 22 and verse 14. And before we look at our text, would you please... Join me in prayer. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship. And as we come to your word, we, uh, we want all that you have for us in it. As we look to uh, Jesus' last meal with his followers, would you please, God, show to us his glory, uh, his beauty, his love, his grace, that by the Holy Spirit you would impress upon each of us uh, his surpassing worth. Make it in our minds and in our hearts, uh, his, his glory incomparable to anything else. Help us to understand your deep love for us, that we might also love you with all of our hearts, minds, soul, and strength. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've ever uh, thought about uh, what you would choose to have as your very last meal before you die, uh, especially if you were to know that your death would be coming uh, the following day and evening. What would you choose to eat, and who would you choose to eat it with? There's a guy on social media who rates the final meal of famous death row inmates, and he recreates the dish, and then he gives his comments on it, and he has something like 638,000 followers. The intrigue, I think, is that you can glean something about someone by their choice of their last meal. And I know today that people often judge other people pretty harshly by their food decisions, and you can also uh, feel a bond with others because of theirs, but, but I don't know if you've ever given any thought to your final one and, and what it would be and who you'd want to have around you as you eat it. I'm sure that the answer to those questions would be quite telling of what is within you. And it's in our passage this morning that we find Jesus uh, on the night in which he will be arrested and of which he would be betrayed and led away by a mob, uh, a falsely accused, stripped and beaten, condemned and crucified for sins that were not his own. Jesus is going to die uh, before the end of the following day. And so this is his very last meal, and he chooses to share it with his disciples. But, but it's not just a meal that he shares with them, but, but it's a meal that he desires that every follower of his would partake of regularly in the future. This is commonly uh, referred to as communion or the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, and whatnot. And it is a meal that every disciple of his should take regularly and of which is quite telling of what is inside our Savior's heart. And we've, we spent months in this last week of Jesus' life, and here it is that we are entering into his final hours. And so we read in verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. 
For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. You know, I want you to notice in these opening verses Jesus' heart for his followers uh, and just how much it is that he cares for them. And we see his heart and his affection for them in his desire and in his abstinence. What it is that he longs for and what it is that he is willing to go without. And I think it's here that we understand more Jesus' heart for his people. Uh, First, his longing. Jesus tells them point blank, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. You'll notice that this last meal is linked to Jesus' suffering and that this Passover is tied to Jesus' own death. And from the very beginning, this is what he has come for. He's come to suffer. From the moment he is named in Matthew 121, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. There had never been a time in his life where this upcoming anticipation of pain was not on his mind. Uh, there wasn't ever a moment where Jesus had been unconscious of what is to come. And here it is that Luke is telling us the hour came. You know, I just turned the age that I'm due for certain medical procedures It's something I'm not looking forward to regarding my digestive tract. And um, my cousin uh, had his done this past Wednesday, and he uh, coincidentally, he called me and said, it's a lot easier than you think that it is. But that doesn't mean I'm looking forward to it. I don't know that anyone looks forward to any kind of uncomfortable events with any kind of eager expectation. I just can't wait to get a root canal or things like that. What Jesus is about to endure is altogether the most suffering a single human being would ever endure. Uh, Jeff preached to us Job last week and spelled out Job's suffering and how he had lost everything, everything except his wife and his life, finances, business, uh, equity, every single one of his children, all of his health, gone, and yet even that is not as much suffering that Jesus is about to endure here. Jesus is on the cusp where the Son of God who knows no sin will be made sin for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And he will die a death that he in no way deserves to suffer the wrath of God that we deserve. And the wrath of God is not like the wrath of humanity. It's not this out-of-control bursting flame. But it's something that is entirely appropriate and consistent with his holy and righteous character that we might understand something about his worth when we comprehend the reaction of his wrath against that which would dishonor him. And Jesus is going to be treated as one who dishonors him. He, the Son, is going to experience from the Father, uh, which is this relationship that makes it all the more painful. Because this bond from eternity past has always been of a certain nature. And in the experience of the cross, it would there cause Jesus to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, this is a kind of suffering that has no comparison. And yet it is somehow that with this suffering linked to this final meal, Jesus is telling his disciples, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I want it. I want the cross. I'm eager to suffer for you. And before this, I want to share this last meal with you, looking into your faces and enjoying your company and being with my people in the midst of you. Now, remember who the you is. I mean, remember who's actually there. 
We have bold Peter who's going to deny Jesus three times even after boasting how he never would. And we have Judas the betrayer. I mean, if I knew someone was about to betray me, especially if I had had that person's back for years, the last thing I want to do is sit across the table and share a meal with them. But here we are, and the scene is such that Jesus is staring into a bunch of disciples who Jesus has had to repeat himself over and over and again and again, and they still don't get what he's saying. I mean, in the very next passage after this one, as Jesus is about to suffer, they all get into an argument. And what do they argue about? Which one of them is the greatest? I mean, are you serious? These are Jesus' final hours with you, this side of the cross, and you can't help but be intoxicated with your own reflection in the mirror. These are the people who form the you here, and again it is that Jesus says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. I mean, with you guys, before I suffer. And doesn't he know who these people are? It's not too late. Just grab your meal and go. Avoid the cross. I mean, they don't even appreciate it anyway. They don't appreciate you anyway. You can dodge the wrath of God, maybe find some new disciples who aren't as spiritually dense. But again, Jesus' highest desire in this final meal of his life before he's crucified is to eat a Passover with these very people, these exact ones. You know, sometimes we think that if Jesus uh, really knew, I mean, really, really knew all the bad things about any single one of us, and every kind of thought that goes through our minds. That we don't know if he would still love any of us. I mean, at the very least, he should love us a little bit less. And you can think of your worst days and your worst failures, and, and you're tempted to believe that he could never give himself to someone like me. But here it is that we witness that he knows it all already. I mean, even before you do. Is both eyes wide open to everything about each of us, and it is that we see in his expressed desire that I want my final meal, and I want it with you. And I know that I will suffer on your behalf right after it. I will bear your sin. I will pay for it. I will suffer in your place, and I want that more than I want anything else. So much that I'm eager for it. You know, I don't know that we can ever quite understand just how much it is that Jesus loves his people. Paul prays in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 18, he prays there that they may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the knowledge of God. It takes a kind of strength supernaturally to comprehend more and more just how much it is that Jesus loves his people to the degree that our understanding of this love surpasses knowledge, and yet it is that to be filled with the knowledge of God is to understand more and more this love that Jesus has for us. This meal, this very table is meant to impress this truth into each of our hearts. And so Jesus is going to endure the most suffering ever in human history on behalf of people who argue about themselves being great. And because of the love within his heart for his people, he is actually eager to share this last Passover meal with them. He yearns for it. You know, this Lord's table, this love is supposed to melt us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, isn't it? Romans 2, 4. 
We're supposed to treasure uh, these things up in our hearts every time we partake of these elements. And so we know his heart and his affection by what he yearns for. He wants to look at them and eat with them one more time uh, before he suffers. But we also know the same heart and affection by what he abstains for, by what he's willing to go without. Jesus says, for I tell you that I will not eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Right after that, I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Jesus is going to go without. He's going to refrain from a kind of eating and drinking and celebration until a much later time. And he is at peace with that. And I think Jesus here is looking forward to the marriage supper of the Lamb in Revelation 19, where the joy of heaven is the union of the two coming together, the, the bride and her groom. Uh, Jesus and his beloved, uh, the Savior and his church. And, and there is this sense where this Lord's table on this final night of his life is like a rehearsal dinner of sorts. It's filled with this joy of anticipation. But it's separated by a time before the ultimate celebration and union of these two who love each other more than anything else will actually occur. And I think there's a similar sense here. That there is a joy that I have now, and there is a joy that I must wait for. And prior to purchasing my people with my blood, I want this more than anything else. And after purchasing my people, my church, my bride, the thing I want most is to be united with them forever and ever. And the joy I have in this moment, and the joy I have with them then, will be separated by a period of abstinence, of being without a refraining from this kind of joy until I am with them again in fullness. And you see a bride and a groom looking at each other at the rehearsal dinner and unless family drama is taking center stage, uh, there's this purity in that glance as they both, with this great anticipation, cannot wait for that consummation. That the next time we're going to eat like this is when our union will be complete, even though we do have to wait for it even though we do have to go without each other in one sense. And there's even certain traditions that have it so that the groom can't even see the bride until she walks down that aisle. That, that even though I'm going to be with you like this, until that day comes, I can go without for a little bit of time because I know that day is going to come. And in this sense, the Lord's Supper is very much in anticipation of that very moment where we will be with Jesus Christ in a way that none of us have ever experienced yet. In a way that our best times with him in this life are just a mere pointer of an upcoming reality that will be altogether everything. I mean, do you believe this? And this very table is meant to impress this into us. That, that we would also long, like he longs, for the day of fulfillment and for the day when the kingdom of God comes. And, and so we know the heart of our Savior and his affection for us in this abstinence, as much as we learn of his love in his desire to suffer on our behalf. And in this communion, we have his heart, desire, and abstinence, what he longs for and what he's willing to go without until the proper time. We continue in verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. 
Here we find Jesus' self-giving to his people for their new life. All of himself and all that he is is given for his beloved. And it's pictured in body and blood represented in bread and cup so that we might remember Jesus. That's why we use little pieces of bread and little cups to signify these very things so that we might be brought to a place of recollection of Jesus giving himself to us and for us. This is a a visual gospel, a sermon for the eyes. Now, it's essential to understand the significance of the Passover event here. The, The reason why Israel celebrated and still celebrates the Passover every year on the year for centuries is because in their history, this Passover was the most significant, salvific event for their people. It was the greatest illustration in their heritage of how it is that God saves. It was a celebration of God's rescue of them from bondage and slavery and hopelessness of being under this yoke of pagan rule in Egypt for 400 plus years so that they might finally be freed from it and enter into a new life of liberty and being under the enjoyment of God's rule instead. And you'll remember how Moses was given to Israel to speak on God's behalf and to lead his people. And Moses, speaking to Pharaoh from God, demanded that Pharaoh let my people go that they might worship me. But Pharaoh did not let his people go. Instead, Pharaoh challenges him saying, who is this God that I should obey him? And so what happens? God's answer in one sense to the very question, who is this God that I should obey him? God's answer in one sense came in a series of plagues where God demonstrates his power and his might. I mean, these plagues were cataclysmic, from rivers turning into blood to all-out darkness to frogs overtaking the land, pestilence, and whatnot. And it was only the Egyptians that experienced this and not the Israelites. There was this this distinction being made between God's people and those who were not. But none of these plagues, as awful as they were, fully convinced Pharaoh to let God's people go. I mean, true, he promised, I'll release Israel if you just stop all of this that's going on. But he would quickly renege when that relief was granted. No plague freed God's people until the very last one, which was the very worst one, where the firstborn of every family would experience death. And every family would feel that death. As in every single household, a human life, and even the life of the livestock, would be lost on a single night. I mean, can you imagine uh, losing your firstborn? And the only way that any of these lives could be spared was if you took a lamb, blemish-free, the Passover lamb, and slaughtered it and sacrificed it and painted its blood on your doorpost so that when the angel of death would come upon your house, it would see the blood of the lamb And death would pass over that household because the blood had already been shed. And because blood had been shed, no more blood would be shed. And the principle is such that to be delivered from the judgment of God is for that judgment to be placed upon another, the lamb, the guiltless in the place of the guilty. Now, this is key because unlike the other plagues where Israel was not under them, This one had been entirely different. It wasn't that Egypt would lose their firstborn and Israel would not because Egypt was the bad guys and Israel the good guys. 
No, the very reason why Israel had been in slavery was because over and over, again and again, they proved themselves to be not all that good. And so it's not because Israel is good and Egypt is bad. No, because if an Israelite did not have blood on his doorpost, he would lose his firstborn that night too. It's only the blood shed from the body of the lamb that protects us from the wrath of God against our unrighteousness. We all deserve it. Israel and Egypt alike. It's not race. Uh, it's not religion per se. It isn't because we somehow earned immunity by having more good deeds outweigh our bad ones. No, it's only because of the blood of the innocent substitute that my fate is different than the Egyptians who did not put their trust in the blood. And then what happens? That's a breaking point for Pharaoh. And he releases God's people from slavery so that they might go and worship and follow and be with their God, new life. Now, what is Jesus doing here? During this very meal that recollects God's saving power by the blood of the Lamb, he is saying, all of this points to me. The Passover is ultimately about me. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is a new covenant in my blood. This bread, this cup is about my body and my blood. Now, that is either an extreme act of arrogance on Jesus' part, or it's a statement of just how profound and significant is the power of Christ's own body and blood being given to his people. The Passover lamb, God's great salvation in history, this lamb in front of us that we're eating, it all points to something even greater. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus in John 1, 29, what does he proclaim? Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, we're all guilty. All of us, we have all and we have each sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, none of us are innocent inside the church or outside of it. All of us deserve the righteous judgment of God upon us, every single one of us. Then how is it that any of us can be saved? By being a good person? Or at least by being a better person than someone else? Like that murderer over there that I compare favorably with? Is that really going to cut it? That since I'm not as bad as that guy, I must be pretty good? And since I'm generally good, I mean, everyone makes mistakes here and there, but I, for the most part, am pretty good. Is that how people can be saved and go to heaven? I mean, that actually is what most people in the world believe. That if I am above average in my morality, then I'm good, they're bad, and I go to heaven, and they go somewhere else. That's insane. It doesn't make any sense for any of us to think that way. No, the only thing that separates those spared and those judged is the blood and body of the innocent, the sinless, the lamb who was slain from the foundation of the world. We need someone perfect 
and actually blameless to be our offering and take our place and endure our punishment in our stead, the guiltless for the guilty, that we trust in the Lamb. We trust in Jesus Christ, that he bled and he gave himself for me, that he is blameless, spotless, pure, and I am not, but he is my Savior, and that he goes to die for me, and he gives his body on my behalf and sheds his blood to wash all my sins away, that Jesus Christ gives himself for me. This is the only way. I have nothing to offer. I plead nothing but Jesus Christ. That is what communion and the Lord's table, this is where it's supposed to bring us, to this very place where we recognize that only he can save, that he is the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. It's a sermon for the eyes. It's a visual representation of the gospel that I have to partake of him. And when we walk up the aisle, we are all those who admit we need a Savior. We're not good enough. And the only thing that separates us from those who perish is this body of Christ and the blood of this Lamb. Not only, and not only are my sins washed away, but I am a different person as a result of this appropriation of Jesus. You'll notice that Jesus speaks here of the new covenant in his blood, and it's a reference to a reality from Jeremiah 31, 33. I'll read it to you. It says, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. And this covenant is, has the language of relationship. He will be ours, and we will be his. It's the language of forgiveness, sin remembered no more. It's the language of transformation, new hearts, new desires, new affections to do the will of God. I mean, this is a new birth by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the real exodus, not from Egypt, but, but in the sense that this body and blood liberates us from our sinfulness and beckons us into new life. It redeems us from slavery and bondage and sets us free to live unto him instead. That this is our delight, his glory instead of ours. And so this new covenant between God and us is not this religion of rules, but one of supernatural new birth and of new and intimate relationship and of a new joy of truly having God as our own. And this is also the reason why we ask people to refrain from this table and this communion unless they're actually believers, which is also requires a contemplation on one's life because this is only for those who have experienced this kind of transformation. Now, now here's a crazy thing, I think. Jesus is explicit. He gives us this table and this supper. Why? Verse 19, in remembrance of them. I mean, why does he say that? You would think with this kind of significant event that we could never forget it. But it is strangely, church family, that we are so prone to forget about them. I mean, when we're at work trying to climb up the ranks, we're so prone to forgetting Jesus and every title and benchmark we achieve that it's not going to last forever. 
We're at the basketball gym or on the soccer or baseball field watching our kids compete. We're so prone to forgetting Christ as we shallow out our understanding of what it is that matters most for our children in this world. When we're suffering from this ailment or this stress and anxiety or, and this lack of what it is that I'm desiring most in this moment, we're so prone to forgetting the love of Christ which surpasses understanding and focusing instead forgetfully as such on what he hasn't given to us when he has already given us himself. When we're neck deep in sin and enjoying its pleasure and being blind to its cost, we hold the bread and the cup in front of us, we're invited to repent again. I forgot how bad sin is that it costs the blood and body of my Savior to wash me clean of it. And there we remember the power of Christ to free us from it as well. We're enduring this broken relationship and this struggling marriage and this betrayal and this drama in relationships that we never thought we would turn, it would turn into something like this. When we're alone and we just want to open another bottle or click this on the internet, we, we're so prone to forget that Jesus himself has promised, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I mean, we are a people who are prone to forgetfulness. We're so bent towards failing to remember that our main issue in this life is not this or that or that or this, but it's that I still have sin within my heart. And as Jesus Christ has already taken care of it, he needs to sanctify me more and more through and through. That my future is secure. Our hope will be finalized. And this rehearsal dinner of sorts is meant to lift my eyes to that future we just sang of in that new song. To place all my eggs into that basket and to go all in like Jesus Christ himself into a kingdom that is coming and a reality that will soon be experienced and a joy that will be made full. What does the song say? The shore is right there. It's right there. And this table is meant to bring us into a remembrance of it. It's meant to deepen our understanding of what it is that matters most so that we would with proper perspective, put what matters less than this in its proper place. And so we find here that Jesus is self-giving to his people, all of himself for their new life, pictured in body and in blood, represented in bread and in cup, so that we might remember Jesus and appropriate him to ourselves. Verse 21, and we'll close with this. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. You know, we'll come back to this next Sunday, Lord willing. But I want you to notice how this Lord's table here is also an appeal to those who are not truly his. You know, Judas is right here next to Jesus. He wants no part of Jesus. He's in the middle of a secret scandal and has already agreed to sell Jesus out to his enemies for a measly set of silver coins. And Jesus here is letting Judas know, I know what you're doing. I know it. Now, if Jesus wanted to expose him, he could have. If Jesus wanted to prevent going to the cross, he could have just told the other 11 guys, Judas is going to betray me. Have your way with him. But he doesn't do that. And I really believe that this is Jesus' last appeal to Judas in the book of Luke. The hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. This is a perfect opportunity for Judas to snap out of it. But of course, he will not.
And Judas stands as a warning to each of us that we might have the craziest of spiritual experiences in our history and the most familiarity with Jesus and even growing up in the church and still not be truly his. And even this faithful is standing as an appeal to you today. Turn away from the life that you're living. Turn away from the sin that you're enjoying. That you might come to Jesus Christ and be saved. We're reminded even in these words of Jesus' sovereign power and love for us. John 10, 18, I lay down my life. I do it. Judas didn't take Jesus' life. Jesus knows everything. I lay down my life. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. He knows what's going to happen. He's eager for it. He knows how sinful and prone we are to forget him, and he gives to us this gift of his table by which we might remember and by which we might be fed and by which we might confess that I need Jesus Christ more than I need anything else. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this table, this communion. We thank you that you had such foresight into such a forgetful people that by your grace you would gift to us what we're about to partake of this morning, that we might feed on Jesus Christ, that we might look to him, that we might look to shore, that we might be eager and have the right perspective and live with all our might, our lives, for Jesus' glory. It's in his name we pray, amen.